On this edition of the Scott Radley Show podcast, Scott Urquhart joins to talk about all kinds of stuff. And here's the beauty of this. Scott and I may not agree on some things, but we can still talk about them as we should with a lot of issues that's going on. We will have a chat. We will talk. We will disagree. Politics, education, travel, COVID, all kinds of stuff. Stick around. Today on the Scott Radley Show on 900 CHML. To help us with the brightest conversation in Hamilton Radio, because you need to have at least one other person to make it a conversation, not a soliloquy. And I would never argue for the brightest soliloquy in Hamilton Radio. (laughs) The brightest conversation in Hamilton Radio. Uh, We're joined tonight from the Hamilton Network on Cable 14 by one of their co-hosts, Scott Urquhart. Scott, really appreciate you. We always love when Scott is with us. One of the one of the great discussers of issues in this city. Scott, thanks for the time. Hey, no problem at all. Nice to hear from you, Scott. Well, and you know, just a moment ago, just before you uh, just before you joined us, I said today is National Punctuation Day. Are you are you one of those guys like me that bad punctuation, bad grammar, bad spelling? It almost it drives you nuts, or do you not care about it at all? No, absolutely. I'm I'm right with you. I'm still one of the old-fashioned guys that uses the Oxford comma. So, yeah, I'm right with you on that one, Scott. I, I, you know, maybe it's working in newspapers for as long as I have, but when I see signs or literature that's posted somewhere or whatever, and they have the wrong use of, say, there, oh, like, it almost almost causes physical pain in my body. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> or or commas in the wrong place or no commas or just, you know, and again, maybe that's being a nerd. Maybe that's being a, you know, a, a yeah. grammar Nazi, as some would say. But I got to tell you, it, it, I'm sure there's a lot of people out there that are like that. Yeah, don't even get me started on semicolons or colons. That's a whole different story <laughs> altogether. Yeah, but see, those ones, you're right. But those ones, those are the like the gray area. Nobody really knows how to use those anyway. So if you, most people will look at a semicolon or a colon and go, I'm not sure that's right, but probably. <laughs> but when someone says, I'm going to your house, and it's Y-O-U apostrophe R-E. Yeah. Oh, Scott, like I get, I get my teeth, my gums begin to buzz. <laughs> So what brought this up today, Scott? What's got you going on the, on well, the no, punctuation it's just, thing? Today is National Punctuation, punctuation Day. Day. It literally yeah. is National Punctuation Day. I hope they spelled that right. Um, <laughs> I hope you're celebrating properly. Y-O-U apostrophe R-E. Um, yes, yes. But I'm, yes, I'm going to have a, a beer, B-E-A-R, to celebrate. <laughs> it is. And here's the amazing thing. I don't know if it's, again, just working in a medium where you write, and so you've got to try to spell things correctly. But I was watching a thing on TV yesterday, and there was a guy on whose name was Brian. And they had, what do you, what, you're a TV guy. What do you call it when you put the thing on the bottom of the screen? The, um, the Chiron? Um, yeah, yeah, different different stations called uh, different things, subscript, Chiron. Yeah, there's okay. a number of different headers. So his, but anyway... His name was on there, Brian, whatever it was. But of course, like happens so often, it was spelled brain. And I was like, oh, where is your, where is your spell checker? Where is your spell checker? You know what? I have to take, I have to take your colleagues at the, the spec and tour star to task because Uh-oh. nobody is, is out there proofreading anymore. And what I see in that, in the paper these days is, is enough to drive me insane. Uh, <laughs> like there are so many uh, misspellings and so many misusages, like you say, you, your, your, you know, whatever. Um, it's, it's just terrible. And Lorraine Sommerfeld, who I, I think you know, and I certainly know, uh, and who is an excellent writer and a stickler for that sort of stuff, her column popped up yesterday um, with a sentence that said, telling tales, T-A-I-L-S. <laughs> <laughs> and I cannot, in a million years, imagine Lorraine making that mistake. Uh, so, uh, yeah, you know, stuff happens. It absolutely happens. I just got an email from someone, uh, from Lori, saying that she has worked as an editor before. She goes, I wish I could paint an apostrophe in all of the Tim Hortons signs. It should be apostrophe <laughs> S. And Lori is 100% right. You know why there is no apostrophe in Tim Hortons? Do you know why? Yes, because of French language laws in Quebec. Right. 
Yes, yes, yeah. because they have to take it out or else they have to have all different signs in Quebec. So, Lori, you are absolutely correct, and thank you for the note. But, um, Scott, before we go here, we got to take a break, but I'll tell you the story. My my all-time editing almost got me fired snafu. Um, <laughs> I write about sports, and in sports, we use the word we, – we type the word shot a lot because, mm-hmm. you know – different sports a lot people take shots on things hockey whatever anyway whoever invented the qwerty keyboard is not a sports writer because they put the o right next to the i and and so one day i was typing a story about this young boy who was a hockey goalie who liked to go out in the backyard and have his dad take shots on him and thankfully i caught my typo before i hit send because that might have been a lawsuit if that had gone through, even if it was accidental. Anyway, we, it's possible, we move along. Especially if there was a sentence about a glass top table in there somewhere. That would have been really bad. <laughs> Everybody, double check your stuff. Double check your writing because you never know. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. Scott, just like minutes before we came on the air today uh we learned that meng wanju has been released she's made a uh she's got a deferred prosecution which i think if i recall correctly is exactly what snc lavalan wanted which caused a bit of a problem but nonetheless uh she got this and she is now i guess either now or very shortly going to be on a plane back to china does this do you think this resets our relationship with China now, because, you know, maybe the two Michaels get free or is this completely just a moment that does nothing for anything? Well, that's a really good question, Scott. Um, Cause uh, I, I gotta, I gotta admit, I'm not caught up on this today. Um, the last I saw about Meng was that uh, she intended to plead guilty in the United States in a, in a court in uh, Seattle. So it surprises me that she's been released and she's going back to China first. Um, whether it resets our relationship with China or not, I don't think so. I, I think it will help. I think it will ease some of the tension. But Canada and China have some bigger problems than that, sort of. See, a lot of people are saying, Scott, that this means that the two Michaels are going to be released. And uh, I mean, look, I, I would love that to be the case. But I'm not so sure that I'm expecting that. And I'll tell you why. Because if China suddenly today turns around and releases those two, it is announcing to the entire world that everything we've said about China holding them hostage, as opposed to being real criminal prisoners, is true. If they release them in the next day or two, they are announcing that they were just taken hostage in, re- in retribution for Meng Wanzhou as opposed yeah, I, to doing something wrong. I, I absolutely agree with you. And so I do not think that we'll see the two Michaels released within the next few days. I think we will see them released, but probably not for another year. I think the Chinese courts will haul them out uh, again for a little bit of a, a review of their trials and sentences, sentence them to a, a nominal amount of time, and then they'll be released after that. And so if that's the case, see, this is, this is where it becomes almost a no win situation for Canada, for our relations with China. If that's the case, people here who are already, I think really many people anyway, I hope many people who are furious about what's happened are going to say, well, why are they not being released? But they, again, I think that you would, you look at China and you say they can't really, they can't do it now without completely save, losing face and looking like this was all just a game. And I don't know. I, I just, I look at this thing and I, I, I've heard some people today already saying, oh, I can see this being a bit of a reset. I see no reset here whatsoever. None. Not, nothing that would change the way things have been going. Well, as I said, it might ease some of the tension, which was uh, continuing to mount, especially after... Uh, uh, the submarine deal that sent nuclear subs, it's going to send nuclear subs to Australia. Canada's part of the Five Eyes group uh, involving Australia, New Zealand, Britain, uh, the United States. So we're lumped in with them, whether we like it or not. And uh, that deal has just infuriated the Chinese. They sent jets towards Taiwan uh, earlier today just to shake everybody up and, uh, you know, flex their muscles in, in return. 
And, and that kind of pattern is sort of what's going on, not just between Canada and China, but the world and China right at the moment. There is uh, a lot of tension. There are a lot of issues. Um, China is, is no doubt a, a significant power, but internally there are some real stresses and strains on China mm. as well. And uh, they can't afford to look weak right at the moment. So, I mean, there's a whole pot of issues boiling that uh, are not going to be sorted out easily. One thing that I hope is true that I believe is that things may be a little better for the two Michaels while they're there. Their treatment may be better. And I'll, I'll tell you why I say that. Because now that they may have to release them at some point, I'm not sure China wants to release two gaunt, emaciated, beaten down prisoners who look like they've been through hell when Meng Wanzhou has lived in a multi-million dollar mansion this whole time. And so, you know, I, I, I'm, I'm hoping that what this means is that probably they get some pretty good treatment now to get them back looking healthy so that when they finally do get their picture taken again, they look like themselves. Well, I think that's the case. Yeah, absolutely. I wouldn't be surprised if, uh, if they were given better accommodations, uh, you know, more visiting privileges, food, all that sort of stuff. Um, uh, they may, there may even be some sort of, uh, uh, pressure on them that, um, if they agree to say that China has treated them well, they may get out even earlier than, uh, say, you know, six months a year, whatever. Um, you, you never know. Uh, I think they will be released, not immediately, but eventually. And I think when they are released, they're going to look, uh, pretty good. So, mm. uh, yeah, I, I think for those guys. Uh, we're headed in the right direction. But in terms of solving everything with China, I don't think so. You know, one of the other things about this story is that um, there are, at, there's at least one, and I think it's a number of them, um, Chinese Canadian political candidates who ran in the federal election who are pointing to their belief that Beijing interfered in the election and affected their ridings and and really had an impact on voting for them. Now, I mean, it could be sour grapes because they didn't win. But boy, you know, as I, I was talking to Scott Thompson just before we came on the air, I do a little thing on his show earlier. And, you know, we went through how many years in the States listening to partisan arguing about whether Russia interfered in their election or not. And we now have a case where people are alleging, politicians are alleging that another country may have interfered in our election. And I've seen no interest by anybody in talking about this or pursuing it. It's like a non-issue. Well, I, I don't know if that's entirely true. Um, I mean, I've certainly, uh, there, there are certainly reports out now that uh, pretty clearly indicate that Russia not only interfered with uh, the last American election, but had their fingers in, in the pie in the last uh, Canadian election, not the most recent one, but the one before, um, it would not surprise me in the least that China is trying to sway uh, politics inside of Canada. And they're not just doing it, uh, you know, by interfering with elections. They're, they're doing it with um, a massive uh, surveillance campaign here in Canada. They are doing it uh, with uh, a massive um, misinformation and, and just generalized um, interference in the day-to-day -day operations of anything uh, that they don't agree with in terms of policy here in Canada. Uh, CSIS has said um, unofficially, I mean, they haven't come out and and uh, made a, a definite accusation, but they, they've certainly suggested that there are a number of Chinese immigrants to Canada over the last decade who are in fact reporting back uh, to the CCP in China, not that they are communist spies, but that they are sympathetic to China. And spying is really a weird thing, Scott. It doesn't have to be top secret information about weapons or anything else like that. All it has to be is information about how things get done in a country, about uh, what uh, the roads are like, what uh, communications are like, where communication centers are, where roads uh, are, maps, that sort of thing. All of that stuff, all of that information going back to any other country is valuable. And 
as it goes along, the Chinese know a lot more about Canada, how Canada operates, and what's going on inside Canada, what the people of Canada think, than we know about China. And that's an advantage to them. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. Scott, I want to spend a few minutes kind of wrapping the election that we had on Monday. I don't want to be dragging out the election week after week after week, but there were a couple of things that, that I want to ask you about that stick with me after we get through this. One of them is, and this even goes back before election day. This goes back to the English language debate. This goes back to stuff that happened during the campaign, but I think it becomes a residual problem for every single one of the party leaders who didn't speak about this. Who of the party leaders, Scott, has the moral authority now to chastise Canadians, to call out Canadians, to criticize bad behavior, to criticize racism or discrimination of some kind, when none of them in the English language debate were willing to take on Quebec and challenge Bill C-21? That, to me, takes the, the high ground, the moral high ground, out from underneath every single one of them. Well, uh... Okay, we're, we're we're opening a can of worms that goes back to like Confederation here, Scott. I mean, um, it, it's a fact of politics here in Canada that nobody is going to insult Quebec on the eve of a federal election, and that's what uh, criticism of, of of Bill C twenty one would be. It would be an insult to Quebecers, and no party can afford to lose ground in. in Quebec, especially the NDP. Uh, they already lost several seats there, and they, they couldn't afford to lose anymore. Um, the Liberals consider it their home turf, but uh, they've certainly been kicked around the block a few times in Quebec over the last uh, couple of decades. And so it, it is a, an issue for all of them, but a problem for all of them. And, you know, it's it's one of these things that here in English Canada we, we grape and, and rant and rave about all the time is the special treatment uh, of Quebec, how they get uh, uh, better, uh, you know, perks out of the government, uh, uh, better uh, payments uh, from Ottawa, uh, how we don't seem to uh, challenge them on almost anything. And it, it is true. I mean... Uh, uh, you know, you only have to go through history, uh, recent history even, to see that. But it's a political reality. Uh, as long as we are considered a confederation, as long as Quebec is a part of our nation, um, then the votes there, uh, as probably the third biggest province in the, in the country, the votes there are too important to uh, national leaders um, to start a fight with Quebec. And I agree with you in generally with the concept, but here's the thing. There's, there's two issues to me on this one. The first one is very simple. I like to believe naively, I, I, I accept, I accept that I'm being naive here, Scott. I like to believe though, that you can at times when the right thing is out there and obvious to be done, that a leader would just do the right thing, not just look at it through a political algorithm. But the other thing is, both the NDP and the Conservatives needed to win seats, especially in the 905 area and in 416 if they could have in order to have a real shot at anything. I cannot believe that if one of the two of them had stood up and said, we disagree with discriminating against people based on wearing a turban or wearing a star of David, whatever, wearing some religious symbol. We disagree. All There's so many parts of the greater Toronto area that have so many people of backgrounds who may fall into that category. I can't believe you may have lost votes in Quebec. You would have gained votes in those rich areas too. Okay. Well, here's, here's the issue though. Here's the problem for the conservatives. They can't do that because too many of their uh, supporters um, really don't care about diversity. Um, you know, for, for O'Toole to come out and, and support uh, that sort of, you know, opposition to that bill is going to not really ring a, a bell with a, a good chunk of his base. Uh, they're not going to be happy with that. So he can't risk it. Uh, then you go to Jagmeet Singh, 
and 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 he can't really do that either because you know he, he's NDP. Uh, he has to support um, minorities and, and people of color and that sort of thing. He can't afford to lose the seats in, in Quebec. They can't afford to lose anymore. Uh, and Trudeau is not going to rock the status quo. I think what may we may see down the road, and, and I'm hoping, I mean, this is just wishful thinking in many ways, but what we may see now that the dust has settled from the election campaign is some sort of gentle persuasion or coercion or uh, you know, incentive for Quebec to either change that law, soften it, or just simply not enforce it um, quietly. You know, it's it's hard to say, but none of the parties, none of the parties could afford to take that on. And I don't think any one of them would have benefited in any way from doing so. So, I, again, I agree with a lot of what you're saying. But uh, again, uh, with the two leaders that you referred to, with, with Aaron O'Toole and, and the idea that the Conservatives would not necessarily back him, I disagree with that. I think that if this had been a bill that was passed or proposed in any other province of the country, Aaron O'Toole would have very quickly and very loudly spoken out about it, regardless of whether he or anyone else thinks that his party would have backed him, which I think they would have on this. I I think that it would have been abundantly immediate, abundantly clear and immediate. And Jugmeet Singh, of all the people on there, and I don't like to say that you only should be fighting for these things because you are one of them. I don't think that's a, a, uh, a situation, not, that, no. but I don't believe that. But of all the people up there, I mean, he would not be able to be working in politics or in the public service if he lived in Quebec based on his religious followings. How he could tie himself in knots and somehow not be against this is is just, it's back. It, 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 you would need to be a gymnast to turn yourself into contortions <laughs> like that. It, it is most painful for him. I, I, I agree, and I, I'm sure that his his tongue has teeth marks on it. But um, mm. it, it was one of those one of those political expediencies that unfortunately we see far too much of these days, um, especially in a situation where where you've got a minority government. Mm-hmm. Nobody is is really standing out, uh, and nobody wants to lose. They're not not necessarily sure they're going to win, but they know that if they do something wrong, they could lose. And I, and I disagree with you about Aaron O'Toole. I don't think I don't think he had the room. I don't think he had the room to maneuver on that issue. He was already being bashed by a good segment of his party for taking moderate stances on mm-hmm. some issues. For him to come out and and you know go after Bill C twenty one, I don't think that would have been doing himself any favors. I don't know. I, I I think they. I think doing the right thing. Look, and, and and once again, we go back to the way this where this started. I just question now, regardless of who might have or might not have. I I just think that them taking the position they did, and again contorting themselves into some sort of weird acceptance, whatever. I think they have removed the moral authority to call out anyone else in this country who does anything that would be improper or racist or whatever else or discriminatory because they have said it's okay in certain circumstances, as long as you're really believing in what you're doing. Well, that's, that's, that's a really, really tough position to be and then turn around and say to someone else, yeah, but you really believe it, but you can't do that. Yeah, They've just hurt themselves. They've hurt their own credibility on this. I don't disagree with you there. I really don't, but uh, the world is no longer black and white. It's mm. it's so many shades of gray that we can't even distinguish anymore. And it, you know the uh, the upbringing that you and I had, Scott, um, where you know morals and, and ethics and stuff were, were clearly defined. All of that has been undermined relentlessly by the decisions uh, of politicians, not just here in Canada, but around the world. We've, we've twisted, uh, you know, the, the Western world, we've, we've twisted ethics and morals to shape whatever we think is right. That is true. Or, that is true. Or, Scott, I think the biggest, we got to run to a break here. I think the yeah. biggest two words 
that are the biggest mistake that our society has introduced into the English language are your truth or my truth. Yep. And that Flexible those two truth. words have done more damage because no longer is there right and wrong. Is there something that is objective and true or not? If you believe it, if that's what you really feel, that's your truth. Live your truth. Welcome to the post-truth society, Scott. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. This this one, uh, boy, uh, I can't wait to hear your thoughts on this one. There was a poll that was done, a survey that was done of 37,000 students at more than 150 colleges and universities. Now, this was done in the States, but I don't have any, I don't think I have any reason to believe that it would not be similar here. Nonetheless, this was an American thing. 37,000 students were surveyed on this one, talking about free speech on campus and free expression on university campuses. Two-thirds of students, two-thirds of students in this poll said it is acceptable to shout down a speaker on campus in order to silence them if they are saying things that you disagree with. And a quarter say violence is an acceptable tool to stop someone from saying something that would be offensive. Now, again, this is an American survey, so the numbers might be different in Canada, but I I don't think they'd be way different. What do we do with this? Because I believe these numbers probably are pretty accurate. How old were you in 1968, Scott? I was, uh, well, almost one. Almost one. Okay. Um, 1968, around the world, was a year of the, the largest global student unrest on record. There were riots and protests everywhere from France to Mexico to Berkeley to Montreal, you name it, Britain, across the world, students were in upheaval over the condition of the world. I think we've gone through that cycle. We're heading there again. We're we're getting to a, a situation where today's world for youth, for students, for people who are emerging is so wrong for them that they can no longer trust the institutions that we have always relied on to make it right. And student unrest, young youth unrest, is building like it did on the campuses uh, in the 60s in, in the, against the Vietnam War, against uh, back then, even then, environmental causes, all kinds of things. And, and they certainly shouted down plenty of speakers to say what they thought was the most important thing to say at the time. Um, you know, they shouted down Spiro Agnew. They shouted down, they shouted down everybody. And but what was they, what were they fighting for though? What were they were fighting for freedom? They were fighting for the opposite of what they're fighting for now. No, no, no. Which I disagree is, with you. I disagree with you completely. They were fighting for, a. Uh, uh, a chance at a better world. They were they were fighting for the end to uh, to the, the sort of capitalist uh, military industrial complex that we've seen so far um, in the '60s. They they wanted that to end. They they wanted a better better life, a better a better chance, a better environment. They wanted a different way of life, and I don't think that's any different. From the uh, from the students and the youth that you see now, they want change, and it's not coming. The institutions that, that they've relied on is not bringing the change that they want to see or need to see, and it's certainly not bringing it fast enough. I agree that, and again, we we agree on these sort of basic principles, and then it's where it branches off. I mean, I agree that change is what they are seeking. I don't believe, though, that any at any point the argument was on any university campus in the past that we want to restrict people's views or their ability to speak. It was the opposite. They were arguing that more views would be heard, that university campuses would be the place where you would have an open discussion on these difficult issues. And it was the, it was the powers that be that didn't necessarily want all the different points of view to be expressed. And now it's the opposite. Now you have the people, the, the students who don't want the different points of views expressed, they only want the ones that they want to hear or that they think are safe or that they think are acceptable. And I think that's a, that's a you know, to me, it's an incredibly dangerous position 
that if the universities allow this and they seem to acquiesce more often than not and say, we need to have safe spaces and, you know, we need to have rooms with, with pet therapy dogs and coloring books. There literally have been those <laughs> things in America for students that are, you know, upset by things they hear rather than saying, you know what, you're going to hear things in your life that are not going to tickle your ears, but you need to then be able to formulate an argument or a debate or a position to explain why that's wrong rather than simply saying, I don't agree, therefore you should not be able to say that. Your basic argument, I agree 100% with, that change is what the what is being sought. It's how, it's the, the method to get there that I think is 180 degrees different. Well, I, I think, you know, I, I think we're kind of um, in between. The, 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 the truth is somewhere in between both uh, points of view here, Scott. Um, Yes, I hear what you're saying. They don't. They don't want to hear what they don't want to hear, and and part of that um, is due to decades of privilege, uh, decades of being brought up to be uh, told that we are exceptional. You know. Yes. Yes. You know. Yes. And yes. And and that's that's part of the issue. But to say that uh, that it all came from the top down in the '60s, I, I I don't agree with that. There were there were plenty of demonstrations shouting down the right of any uh, moderate, any conservative to to state a point of view. They were shouted off campuses around the world. So that isn't really new, I don't think. Um, but I agree with you. There, there's a different mindset in that, and that, and that there seems to be a, a, a personal side of this that maybe wasn't quite as as sharp in the '60s. Like um, the youth today takes it as a personal affront, and, and they, yeah, you're right. In, in the in the '70s, '60s, '70s campuses, when I went to university, they were. Uh, uh, bastions of a free thought, free speech, as long as you can make an argument, as long as you can make a better argument. Uh, yeah, that's right. You, that, yeah. You know, we got to run, we got to run, but yet you're, I mean, look, I, I, again, I think that it's a, I think this is trouble. I mean, look, change, you can fight for change. I, I just think that the argument that we need to shut people down from having points of view is, is very dangerous. You're listening to the Scott Radley show podcast on 900 CHML. What's your personal level of comfort right now as you go out in public that you're either going to be fine or that you're going to come down with it or something in between? I, you know what, Scott, I, I'm kind of at the, at the point where I don't know what to think, to be honest. Um, I, I'm fully vaccinated. Uh, I still wear a mask. And yet uh, large gatherings like that it, it kind of make me a little wary. And yet, next week, I'm going to go up to Algoma and hop on a train and go down into the Agawa Canyon with my wife and look at the fall colors. So, <laughs> am I a hypocrite? Am I confused? What's the matter with me? I, I don't know what to think. See, I don't think you're a hypocrite at all. <laughs> and I think your confusion is... I think the confusion right now is very warranted. And I'll tell you why, because everybody, well, most people, the people who went and got their two shots, their two vaccines, were told you had to do this to protect yourself and to protect others. And then when you get the two vaccines, they say, yeah, but you still can't be out and around people without a mask and in a busy area. And a lot of people are saying, well, then why the heck did I get a vaccine? If the vaccines aren't actually helping me, what was the point of this whole procedure? And if they're saying now, well, you know what? The vaccines will prevent you from getting a more serious reaction to COVID if you catch it, which you still could. Then a lot of people are saying, okay, so I could get it, but I won't have a very serious reaction likely if I've had my vaccine. So why am I still wearing a mask and not being able to go to busy places? I, I think the whole thing has been terribly confusing and the communication has been terrible in a lot of ways. Oh, I, I don't disagree with you there. And, you know, it, it'd be, you know, as, as a staunch liberal, it'd be fun to point the finger at Doug Ford and say it's all his fault. But <laughs> the truth of the matter is, it doesn't matter where you turn to what level of government or what, uh, you know, health body or 
uh, whatever. Uh, yeah, the story is different no matter you know what source you look at, and um, I, I can understand why why some people are really you know upset and fed up, and they they said you know the heck with it. I'm I'm not getting vaccinated, but to me. Um, that's exactly the wrong attitude. I mean, the longer we go on with this, you know, one toe in the water, the longer this whole pandemic is going to last. It's going to go around and around and around, put more pressure on our, our health system, uh, burn out our, our healthcare workers, have them quit the system, uh, you know, shut down our economy. Uh, We've got to just clamp down and get rid of this thing and, you know, give ourselves a chance to get back on track. And that's the that's where the confusion is, though, Scott, because I look, we, I think most of us agree with the idea of getting the vaccines. I've had my two. I'm not I'm not anti-vaccine. I'm not opposed to it. I've had it. I've got the all that chemical is coursing through my body as we speak. And yet, as I say, the confusion and the the discombobulation people have is, but then why if I got it and they told me I had to get it and now I've got it and we still can't go out and do things. I thought this was supposed to protect me. And whether that was bad messaging or whether that's confusion about what's going on, People have received a message that this will be the solution, and then they're being told, yeah, but it's not really the solution. And that's Oh, no, I I disagree. I I think it is the solution. It does give you protection. It's just the level of protection is not 100%. And that that is not uncommon with any vaccines going back. Right, right. So let me play devil's advocate then. If it, I agree with you, it's not a hundred percent, but it's supposedly, according to the numbers, your chances of having a serious reaction to getting COVID if you've had the vaccine for those people who would get it is the the reaction you have is way, way, way lower in the majority of the cases. Are mm-hmm. there not risks in anything in life? If you drive, oh, sure. there's a risk you're going to crash your car. So at a certain point. Are there not, is, and again, playing devil's advocate here, is there not a point where you say, look, your chances of getting this are much lower. If you get it, your chances of having a bad reaction are much lower. We can accept the risk. Okay, here's, let me play devil's advocate. You're talking about, uh, you know, you could get in a car crash. Um, true. Um, but we have laws in place to prevent you from driving drunk. Yes. Yep. Just like, you know, we, we might be looking at laws to prevent you from going around unvaccinated. And the reason is, if you drive drunk, your right to drive starts to infringe on my safety and well-being. And that's where it ends. And that's the same with vaccines. Your right to refuse a vaccine ends when it starts to fa- affect the health and safety and economic viability and progression of society. Uh, And so I am all for vaccine mandates. I am all for mandatory vaccines because I think, you know, it's like driving drunk. You're out there and you're going to hurt somebody else. Maybe not yourself. You may only get a mild case, but somebody who's around you who picks up that case could die. And I'll look... Okay, and I'll, and I'll give you that one for now. Let's let's not argue that point right now. That has been, I mean, there's been arguments. I mean, there's uh, there's been volumes. I mean, I don't know how many pages have been written on whether vaccines should be mandated or not. But my, my issue is more, and my question is more, the people who have been vaccinated, and today we're hearing, you know, attendance at sports events can go up, but it's still not open doors. If you can prove you've been vaccinated, it's still not maximum capacity. And that's, that's my point. It's not about the getting the vaccine. It's even if you've had the vaccine, they're saying you still can't do stuff. And that's where I think the confusion is coming in. And that's where the frustration is coming. That I've done what you've asked me to do. And now you're telling me it's still not good enough. Well, I think, yeah, uh, I think that's, I, I'm not sure I have a problem with that because it's not good enough because we're not at a level where transmission uh, and serious problems could arise from people 
packing Maple Leaf Gardens or the Air Canada Center or no, I guess what it is now, Scotiabank Scotiabank Arena, Scotiabank Place, Scotiabank Arena, Scotiabank. Yeah, Scotiabank. I'm going. My mind is going back years. I, um, I'm with you. Pops Coliseum. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> exactly. But yeah, uh, packing Scotiabank uh, or, or packing, um, you know, a Blue Jays game or you know, you're you're putting thirty thousand people. Uh, say what are we, what's our what's our average now? There's twenty, ten, twenty percent of people out there who still aren't vaccinated. So you're looking at six thousand people in the crowd that aren't vaccinated and are transmitting the disease. But what if they are? But Scott, what if mm-hmm. they are? What if you could only like the Jays now say you can only come in if you show proof of double vaccination? So okay. what this is the this is the confusion. What if everybody in that building is double vaccinated and they still say that's not good enough? You still can't fill the building. Well, that's it. I, I mean, I, I don't I don't necessarily think uh, that overabundance of caution is necessarily a bad thing. Because it, it, it's known that even people who have been vaccinated can still come down with the virus. So even if you're double vaccinated and you pack the building with people who are double vaccinated, that is no guarantee that the virus is not circulating among that crowd. That's just the way it is. And, and I don't see any problem with, with being overly cautious uh, until, like I say, we beat this thing to the ground. I was going to ask you, you already answered the question because I was going to ask you if you would be okay traveling right now, because one of the things that I think a lot of people, you know, during the news break, I popped my head upstairs and I noticed that, you know, this time of night, a month ago, it was still bright sunshine out and warm and it's now almost dark and cool out there. And this is the time when people start thinking, I'd like to make my plans for traveling in the winter. And a lot of people are saying, I don't know if I should, I don't know if I can you're 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 clearly okay because you're going to do it you're clearly okay with the idea of traveling right now yeah i i would love to but i i gotta say um this trip uh maria and i both you know sort of chewed it over and said what do you think can we do it um the reason we do it is because we feel our our exposure risk is relatively low and that would be the same if I were thinking about hopping on a plane somewhere. I, I would have to calculate, okay, what is my risk uh, doing so? Would I hop on a plane to Florida? Nope. Uh, you know, but I might consider some other destination where the, the, the rates of, of COVID transmission and what have you are fairly low. I think it's an individual thing. You've got to calculate your own individual risk and decide, am I willing to take that risk? Is it, is it that important for me to go somewhere or not? I'd get on a plane today and fly anywhere right now. And and again, because I feel like I've been double vaccinated and I'm, and, and everything I've seen says the, the chance of me, even if I got the, even if I got COVID now, cause it, it's still possible after you've had two vaccines, it's still possible to get it. But even if I got it, the chances of me having a terrible reaction, it's possible, but it's very, very small. And, you know, as I say, Scott, in life, we do all kinds of things where there is a very small risk of something bad happening, but we don't, we don't not do anything. Well, some people do. Some people lock themselves in their house and never come out. But most of us are willing to accept some risk in our life. And I'm at that point now. I'm willing to accept some risk. Yeah, but it, it's you accept some risk based on your own experience, Scott. In my own experience, uh, I've had pneumonia four times. Um, I have uh, breathing difficulties on occasion. Um, I have an underlying blood condition. You know, I have issues like that. I'm not unhealthy, but I'm not really 100% healthy either. So for me, there's an added, you know, layer of calculation. Sure. But that's, but that is, but you're the bright one who says, you know what? I clearly have to make a decision for myself here that says this would not be a good idea for me. Exactly. Right. And, 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 this is, again, this to me is the confusion. I, I, I want to make clear in case someone's tuning in now. I'm not arguing against the vaccines. I've had the vaccines. My family has the vaccines. It's the idea of 
do we what should be the level of governmental oversight on this that that says we still can't do anything or do all these things or and i don't know the answer to that one i'm not bashing any particular government for the decision i don't know the answer i just know that it's a very confusing set of messages that we're getting that yeah, we all have to be vaccinated but then we still can't do normal things can't disagree with you there but like i say i i kind of feel like until we beat this thing to the ground, I'm willing to put up with the inconvenience. Here's my concern about that, Scott. I don't believe that we're going to beat this thing to the ground. And I, I, I don't mean that we're not going to be better than now. I think COVID is going to be like a lot of things, which is there's always going to be COVID. It's one of those things now that's in that's been exposed to the world. Somebody in the world is always going to have it, which is going to keep it alive. And... What does this mean for the future then? That do do we every winter do we have to have lockdowns or do we have to wear masks or do we have to distance? What I I I, I don't believe we can ever eradicate it. Maybe I'm being unfairly pessimistic. Well, maybe but... it it eventually it gets to the stage where um, it, it is like the flu today. You know, the flu um, used to kill literally millions of people. And uh, as vaccines improved, as things improved, as we got a handle on on how it was transmitted and uh, where, uh, you know, it was likely to emerge first. And, you know, Australia is going through their flu season now. So we have a a preview of what's coming our way. You know, maybe that's what's going to happen with COVID in the future. Um, It will not be the deadly disease that it is right now. But while it is still a deadly disease i think there is no reason not to take it seriously and take as many precautions as we can until we can get to the point where we can control it we have just a few minutes but you just raised one other thing and so i'm going to go on this one because i wasn't going to talk about it or go into this but you know you mentioned the flu and and a fascinating note about the flu and i'm not exaggerating you know this to be true so Last year, the flu was almost zero in this country because of either social distancing or people staying at home or washing their hands or masks. There were almost no cases of the flu in Canada. And I do wonder, and I'd love to hear what you think about this. I do wonder if when we get back to some kind of normal life and the flu comes back and people start dying of the flu, elderly people, people with pre-existing conditions, but people start dying of the flu again. Are we going to start having public health people saying, we now have to, look, we got rid of the flu, so we need to do those same things again to get rid of the flu. Are we going to have this as an ongoing thing now to get rid of the flu as well as COVID because people die of the flu? No, I I think, um, and and as you know, uh, Scott, my my daughter is an emergency room nurse. And so she sees all this stuff every year, every year. And um, last year over the winter, it was clear that the number one thing that was keeping flu at bay was washing your hands. Simple mm-hmm. as that. And, uh, you know, I think when we get into the flu season again, and we will, we'll just go back to what we've been doing. Um, take your flu vaccine every year, take your shot, wash your hands for God's sake. <laughs> and, and those sorts of Tiny little measures will make a big difference. I hope you're right. And and look, if washing your hands is all it is, and we learn that this time, if that's the lesson that comes out of this for the flu, that would be fantastic. Um, I, I, I hope that, and I think a lot of people hope this, that while we do want to get rid of COVID and we do want to do the right things to get rid of it, I hope we don't get ideas that, you know, now the flu vaccine has to be mandated or other steps like that. I, you know, this to me, COVID has been a, a, a very unique situation that has required a unique response. I hope this doesn't lead to the idea that, you know, COVID our, our what we did with COVID was great. So let's do it with a lot of other things. That would be to me a, the downside of what we get out of this. Yeah, I know there are, are a lot of people out there who are, are very, very concerned about government overreach and, um, how, you know, how much intrusion into our lives uh, is going to be allowed and how long that's going to last. 
and all of those issues, anti-democratic issues, which I, I hear you. I certainly hear you. But um, I, I want to point out that this is not the first time that this country or this society or uh, has ever on, undergone anything like this. There were incredible restrictions during two world wars and through the 70s uh, in the uh, FLQ crisis, the War Measures Act was proclaimed. It's not the first time that we've had these kinds of restrictions. It won't be the last. But every single time they've been proclaimed and these restrictions have, have cropped up in Canada to date in history, we've always reverted back to open democracy as soon as possible. Yes. Yes. And I have faith we're yeah. going to do and, that again. I, and, and that's the point. And it's a great point you raise. I mean, I... I Unique times call for unique responses. Unquestionably, in the world wars, for example, as you point out. Yeah, I mean, obviously, we don't we're not living through a world war right now, but that was a very unique moment in history. And you're right, we went back to the freedoms that we had, and the government interventions pulled back. That's what I'm. That's exactly what I'm, I hope that that history repeats this time, and that today's government, today's bureaucracies, don't decide. Let's keep this going a little bit. That's the concern. I hope that history does repeat itself, as you said, in this particular yeah. case. And that then, you know, then you say this was two years, three years, whatever it was. This was a, a unique moment in history, but we went back and, and we got through it. And I think we will. Fingers are crossed. Wood is being touched. All the other things <laughs> that can uh, that can be done. Uh, Scott Urquhart, it is always great having you on. You always are a thoughtful uh, commentator and someone who uh, gives tons of food for thought on these things. We love it when you take some time. Thanks for doing this. No problem at all, Scotty. You can see Scott on the Hamilton Network Monday, Tuesday, Thursday, Friday on Cable 14, and there's reruns as well, and just look for him. He's the good-looking guy on that show. Don't tell Mike Fortune I said that. The Scott Radley Show. Weekday evenings from 6 to 8 on 900 CHML. The Scott Radley Show podcast is available on Apple Podcast, Google Podcast, and wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Scott Radley. Thanks again for listening, and do not forget to subscribe to this podcast. It is free. You will never miss an episode. And also, be sure you rate us and review us. Whatever you think of us, we'll take it. Thanks for listening.